Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Brawn Body Health and Fitness Podcast. Today, I'm excited to welcome Keelan and Seki onto the podcast. Keelan is a physical therapist who really specializes in the hip joint at this point in his career, and he spent a lot of time researching the hip. So we're going to dive into some of his research and literature work today in the podcast. We're going to dive into some different examination and evaluation considerations. We're also going to discuss some return to sport considerations, as well as some general guides for interventions, because unfortunately, three sets of 10 sideline clamshells never changed anyone's life. I know you're going to love this episode. Be sure to check out all the amazing resources we have in the description below, including the links to Keelan's research gate. And also be sure to check out the CPG that Keelan mentioned a few times during this episode as well. Enjoy. Keelan, welcome to the podcast. I'm super excited to work with you today. Oh, great. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's so funny how many people we uh, share mutual connections with there. It's uh, crazy how small this world really is once you get into it. And, you know, everything I've heard from them is that you are kind of the guy when it comes to the hip, especially with hip and sports injuries. So would you mind kind of filling us in a little bit about who you are, how you got into the hip research and kind of where you're at currently? Yeah, sure. Great. Again, thanks for having me. Yeah, I, um, yeah I'm a, obviously I'm a, a physical therapist and athletic trainer. And I've, uh, uh, you know, over my little more than 20 year period of time, I've uh, only worked in one place and that's the uh, University of Pittsburgh Medical Center uh, in different capacities. And that's kind of where I started and it's still where I currently am in regard to my journey, if you will, of seeing particular specifically these hip issues um you know i went to physical therapy uh, I, I did my uh, uh graduate and entry-level work at the university of pittsburgh and I, I soon went into a uh right after finishing at that time it was an mpt program uh i went into a, a sports physical therapy residency and during that time um i, I was fortunate that we had a, a surgeon named mark philippon who's pretty well well he's maybe the best known you know surgeon in terms of athletes and hip arthroscopy and he was at our center so, you know, it wasn't a well-known procedure at the time. He was one of the pioneers, uh, you know, who, who kind of pushed that procedure, particularly in athletic individuals. So I had a very dense uh, uh, and, and focused uh, um, exposure to these patients. And I had a, a mentor named Pete Dreovich, who I believe is, uh, I believe, with the Jacksonville Jaguars uh, now uh, as a physical therapist and athletic trainer. And, 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 you know, I was fortunate to, to learn from his experience and see, you know, at one point, almost all my patients, it's, it's still the case, but at that point they were almost all post-operative hip patients and getting a very you know, focused exposure, then it opened up opportunities to, to teach, you know, at the academic level and continue education and then publish. And, you know, over the last 20 years, uh, that's been my my primary clinical focus um it's now expanded into you know as you go on the career you kind of take on administrative roles and you know and uh and, and directing a residency program and administrating all five of our residency programs and be involved in our professional organizations but almost everything I do clinically always comes back to a, a hip uh specific emphasis so it's been it's been quite an experience uh, being part of but also learning and, and watching the, the evolution of, you know, what we know and what we do with individuals, athletic individuals with uh, hip pathology. And it's also kind of humbling because for all that, you know, kind of work that you put in and then uh, advances that you make, you also realize just how much you, you still don't know. <laughs> yep. The Dunning-Kruger effect continues to hold true. You know, you think exactly. you know a lot and then you get involved and it's like, wow, I really don't know as much as I thought. And uh, yeah, it's, you know, I, uh, people say expert. I don't know if we even have one. We, we can qualify as an expert. We just have people who have been exposed more, I think. <laughs> yeah, I continue to find myself in that situation uh, here, actually. And, you know, one of the things I really like that you mentioned is, you know, you've kind of received a lot of different input from a lot of different individuals, right? You mentioned an individual who's now with the Jacksonville Jaguars. So obviously a little bit more football experience. You also uh, mentioned the name of uh, Dr. Philippon there. And I believe He's out in Vail with the Stedman Clinic, or maybe it's Stedman Philippon Clinic. It is. Um, so, you know, <laughs> certainly some great individuals, and I believe they're very well known for um, skiers, um, yes. which, you know, as someone who comes from a skiing background myself, I'm always interested to hear names like that be shared. So ultimately, I kind of like how, you know, what you're explaining to me is your approach is kind of like you but it's also standing on the shoulders of these giants that came Absolutely. before you and helped impact, you know, who you are today and how you do things. And I think that's ultimately kind of where we need to go in the PT profession, right? Like, so how do you kind of 
just starting out here, how do you apply that to the hip? I mean, it's a complex joint, ball and socket, moves in all crazy directions. We see some wacky pathologies there sometimes. So how do you go about just kind of like initially looking at the hip joint? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. And, and uh, you know, and that, that in my personally, I think uh, for me has evolved over time. And I think, you know, when you look at the way we would have, uh, you know, if we published an article 15 years ago, the way we describe it, and it's changed much. And that that's across the spectrum, right? That, that's what we talk about in physical therapy, which I I think I'm, I would say I'm proud to say that we've expanded that, uh, you know, as a, as a whole, the way we look. It's not just all special tests now, right? We have a much more of a movement-based based, excuse me, emphasis, but uh, across the board, our surgeons, our athletic trainers, even strength, you know, strength and conditioning specialists, uh, you know, it was, we looked at team approach and, you know, one of the major, you know, the things that we, we always emphasize is first, you better make sure it is the hip, right. That that's causing these issues that you see, uh, you know, it's a basic thing we talk about, you know, probably day one or two, and at least in, you know, many musculoskeletal sequences and entry-level training that, you know, uh, having the ability to organize your examination that includes, uh, you know, a lower quarter screen, spine examination, SI joint examination, other non-musculoskeletal causes is a very good starting point because the hip, that region is very complicated, very hard to visualize. You don't see the hip joint, not many palpable structures there. But if you think of all the influences of all the structures I just mentioned, they all intersect in that area. So as a clinician, young, old, experienced, not experienced, you're really going to frustrate yourself. If you don't have this very organized approach, history, you know, uh, again, that's often emphasized in anything that we look at, that history is a large component. Here it is particularly uh, useful when you sometimes don't have the hands-on ability to place your, to palpate structures or to really touch those structures. So the history is, 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 is very beneficial. It sets the, you know, sets the course for the rest of the examination. Uh, so fun, step one is just determining that it truly is the hip that you're looking at. And then step two related to that is often, because the truth is in clinical, you know, the clinical reality, uh, you don't often see, you, you often will not see just isolated issues, right? Sure, the hip may be an issue. And this is where often we have to talk to our surgeons because you're going to find on almost anybody some sort of bony issue there, right? Or some sort of radiographic issue. Uh, impingement is a good example, right? That's really just morphology. Is it, is it really pathology? You know, is it coupled with symptoms and dysfunction? So, you know, uh, being able to look at all the areas that potentially qualify for someone's presentation and then systematically rule them in or out and then prioritizing, you know, is the, is the hip really what we're going after here? And then determining what it is about that hip that is really problematic. That's where discussion with our surgeons and other people of the, you know, other uh, members of our healthcare team, uh, it can be helpful. Maybe it's, they need imaging. Maybe they don't, you know, sometimes they already have it when we see them. And then that's, you know, what does that imaging mean? Do we, we don't want to overemphasize that and how we communicate that to the patient. So that's where that team approach is very important because, uh, you know, if one cog of that, that wheel is, is off, then, you know, the, the, the patient either becomes confused. Sometimes uh, uh, it doesn't buy into the process. So that really, again, comes back to emphasizing that teamwork approach. Yeah, I love that you bring up the teamwork approach. And I also love that you emphasize the systematic importance here is ultimately, if you want to get better at something over time, you kind of have to repeat it over and over and over again. And while there's value in individualizing each assessment, I still do that. Um, you know, I say that as someone who's still young and learning a lot, but um, I still individualize each assessment in a way that I'll throw in different things uh, after my normal rundown, but my normal rundown still looks very similar. And I think there's value in having some repetition. There's value in going from gross movement to isolated movement or vice versa and picking up the trends over time. Because as you mentioned, you know, if we can't repeat it, how are we going to improve in it? And at the hip, it's kind of a complicated joint in the sense that you could have lumbar spine symptoms causing hip pain. You could have SI joint. Um, I know it only moves three millimeters or whatever, <laughs> but it can still cause some issues. Sure. Um, so you can have the SI joint contributing to hip pathology. You could also have issues at the knee or foot and ankle contributing to pain at the hip. So it's kind of difficult to look at this one joint that's kind of smack dab in the middle of everything and kind of really get a look of everything if you just go at it in an isolated alone approach. Um, so I guess, you know, how do you go about like looking for things to roll in or roll out other areas of involvement, right? Like, you know, if you have someone's imaging report, it says, yeah, they've got hip impingement. But your exam says, hey, it's coming from the lumbar spine. It's not like an impingement only. How do you kind of approach those situations where the imaging might not 
exactly correlate with what you see clinically. Yeah, that, and that's that's important too. It's sometimes it's uh, you know the way that you approach it, or or probably more so the way you have the conversation may vary depending you know who you're working with. I mean, unfortunately, I work with you know all the surgeons I work with, I pretty much know and. You know, so the, the, the first thing I don't do is just, you know, bust open the door and say, hey, you're absolutely wrong. The hips, not, you know, despite what the imaging says. Um, but, you know, there's could be a nuanced conversation, even with the patient on this. So, you know, we'll, we'll look at the individuals. Obviously, their 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 characteristics of pain presentation. Where does it hurt? You know, uh, and this isn't, you know, not put on anybody. But I think, it, it, and, you know, our, our surgical colleagues have told us that they've learned a lot from the, the physical or physios, depending on the country and therapists and looking at the whole body where sometimes they don't, they, they just don't have time in the office or it's just not on, you know, in, in the surgical wheelhouse. But, you know, when we look at symptoms that are inconsistent with hip issues, location of discomfort, aggravating activities that that MG may have a large, you know, we'll call it a bump, you know, uh, morphologically, but the activities that bother them just don't correlate with the typical things you see someone who has femoral impingement syndrome or FAIS. Um, other concurrent symptoms back, SI is a big one that you mentioned. I could tell you and I, my colleagues would tell you the same thing that it wouldn't be unusual for us to get a case comes in athletic case, you know, Hey, I have hip impingement. It's all in radiograph, you know, I'm in, you know, decent amount of pain. They point to their SI area. So I was like, you know, we're going to evaluate this session. We may manually treat that this session or, you know, a corresponding exercise of more appropriate SI joint. Let's come back and reevaluate your hip a week later and see where you're at. I mean, there are times when they come back and not in pain at all, right? It was the SI area. But, you know, they went to a specialist who looked at their hip and, yeah, there was a bony issue there on, on radiograph, not even an issue, right? Just a variation. Um, so what we, we we need to do first is listen, you know, go it, it, look at quality of movement, look at reproduction of symptoms. And are they consistent? What we know, you know, occurs in that area when that when that's problematic. You know, the imaging is great, you know, but I probably wouldn't even need it in cases like that. You know, uh, you know many of us are practicing thankfully in direct access where we wouldn't have it anyway so uh, you know the listening component and looking for what makes sense for what we know right or when you see multiple areas involved i ask which well, what's your primary complaint here yeah you know the hips a little sore but where what was sore what was uncomfortable first what is your primary limiting factor you know if they're pointing to for your example you know the si joint area we're going to look at that and treat it first so i always stress to our residents you know don't be afraid or don't don't be uh, uh, hesitant to almost do a multi-staged evaluation where you find you prioritize what seems to be worse uh, uh, in terms of the, the limiting factor, treat it, come back, reevaluate it. It's going to save, one, it demonstrates, uh, you know, the uh, why you're prioritizing certain areas to that patient and to yourself. It makes it a less, much less frustrating process as opposed to kind of a sometimes a whack-a-mole approach where you're trying to hit everything in one setting. You, you shot you, unintentionally, you kind of shotgun a bunch of uh, treatment interventions. And if they respond or don't respond, you still don't know which one was most or least effective. Yeah, no, I love that point. And I think that's where the test treat test method, as you mentioned, really holds a lot of value um, is just really using your exam to not just come up with a hypothesis as to why someone's in pain or why someone's seeking physical therapy, but actually confirm it, right? Run your trial. Uh, you know, I know N equals one in this case, but run your trial, try your interventions and then retest and see what the outcome is. Because if you get a, a favorable outcome in a short amount of time like that, I'd imagine the rest of the treatment plan really kind of falls into place. Um, but yes. if you can't nail it on day one, then you're going to be sitting there kind of shooting blindly, uh, expecting something's eventually going to stick. And ultimately, you know, I think it's tough to learn as a clinician if you don't have a purpose for every action. And I also think it's not necessarily the best use of your patient's time and or financial resources to be seeking a clinician who doesn't have some kind of plan in place as to what is going on and you know how to assess it or how they're going to proceed. You don't have to know everything. I certainly don't know everything right now. Um, and there's some plans that you know change as I get through there. Um, you know, as I'm going through the plan of care, I adjust things or new things come up. I'm far from perfect myself, but I think in general, having some kind of understanding of this is what I believe is going on. This is how I'm going to take care of it. Um, goes a lot more than just kind of shooting willy nilly here. This isn't the wild west, unfortunately. And it also helps you, you know, make referrals, uh, you know, in the other direction, right? So I'm seeing somebody, I've gone through my toolbox of things I can do that I typically see or even don't typically see. None of them are lighting up. And then, you know, at times I'll say, well, you know what, maybe we do, maybe, especially in the direct access setting, maybe it's time and you see a, a, an individual outside my domain because, you know, let's use who's surgeon or specialist, for example, orthopedic specialist and 
position because I haven't made you better, but I've done everything I could do. I can tell you, I can sit here in front of you and tell you exactly what I did. The areas I usually treat in, in my intervention has helped. That even includes within our own profession, the hip is close, you know, the pelvic floor. Sometimes I'm referring out to our pelvic floor specialists. Uh, that picture becomes more clear when I realize what I typically do just isn't helping that individual, or at least not to the point that they're satisfied. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And that's where having a good network certainly comes into play yes. as well, because <laughs> if you don't know those people, uh, it's certainly more challenging, I would say. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So, you know, we mentioned the SI joint a couple times. How do you go about looking at the SI joint and how do you kind of look to differentiate that from the hip? You know, I yes. love the Laslet cluster personally, but I yep. recognize that a lot of the Laslet cluster tests overlap with some of the hip tests, such as like a Faber or thigh thrust. Um, so how do you kind of go about differentiating SI from the hip? Yeah, you actually spelled it out. Your, your clinical rationale, you just kind of uh, uh, summarized there is really the way that I look at it too. So we have our cluster of tests that we know are you know, well-validated in the SI joint population. So for me, again, location of symptoms, uh, uh, and I ask them, is that their primary, you know, location of discomfort? We take them through a number of those tests that are well-known through SI joint. What I will do is often modify, as you just discussed, the, 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 the Faber and other tests that utilize hip, either range of motion or potential compression. Um, I will probably move those further down the list in lieu of other tests that just don't involve the hip. If I can bring out, uh, it, 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 and not that I have a particular cutoff because I don't think it's been researched, but if I can recreate consistent SI joint patterns in tests that have minimal hip involvement, uh, um, and then, you know, the simple question, is this your primary pain? That's why you're here to see me, right? Uh, um, I'm pretty confident then that the SI joint is my primary and I go after that. Now, it gets a little murky at times, and this is where it just, you know, at times the, there isn't a, a, a blueprint for this where you, you start applying a number, number of those tests that are designed to, you know, bring on symptoms of the SI joint. You think, think of the favor, it's been used for a million different things, uh, you know, SI joint issues, hip issues. Uh, it's been described literature for gluteal tendinopathy. Then you have to really look at how you interpret that test. And, and again, it comes back to me saying, where does this hurt? You know, is, is this your primary complaint? And then I have to you know that's your clinical intuition, right? The, 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 and then our, our hip tests go back and they'll do those go through those, at least the screening component. And most of those are better screening tests than they are than, than they have specificity anyway. And, and, you know, again, you kind of weigh it out. Am I getting, you know, hip and SI joint tests, one's positive, the others aren't negative. That's a pretty easy decision. If they're both coming up positive, then that's a discussion with the patient. Which pain here is primarily why you're here to see me? That's what we're going to go after first. The reality, especially with the hip and the SI joint is, is the prime example, but, you know, low back, general low back pain in general is often you will get those, those individuals that will kind of light up on both tests. Um, and that's when you have to prioritize, you know, what, what you're looking at. Now, I will also add in, then we look at their movement quality, uh, because sometimes when it comes down to treating movement, that, that would be something you would do for both those populations. So if they have a terrible, you know, the tests you look at in the hip literature are no different than the knee and many other uh, motor control on step down, single leg squat. Uh, if we see that that is faulty, uh, correcting that or, or addressing that as a movement impairment, ideally, you would think would benefit both of those uh, issues if they were having both. Right. You actually kind of led into my next point there is I'd imagine just because of the anatomical similarities between the SI joint and the hip, I mean, the glute muscles run to the greater trochanter area from the sacrum. Um, and, you know, there's a like the deep six external rotators come into play as well. I know you've done some research on greater trochanter pain syndrome. I know you've looked at kind of that glute tendinopathy and also mm -hmm. like micro tearing of those tendons as well because while we think of like rotator cuff tears we often don't think of that as it applies to the hip and these muscles essentially rotate the hip so i would imagine that some of those exam overlaps when you see some positive si joint and some positive hip i'd imagine that might lead you to kind of look in that area of the similarities between the two yeah. Yeah. And that, and that's where, you know, even if you look at the literature for as much as we have, admittedly, this is, you know, younger literature, if you want to call it that, but um, you know, that, that that's kind of a, a, a link that you can see. We know individuals now, again, depending on the age group, not as well researched in athletes. So there's emerging literature, literature looking at it, but think of gluteal tendinopathy or greater trochanteric pain syndrome, GTPS, um, you know, those individuals with gluteal tendinopathy there, there's a high proportion of them that have the majority would almost say either a low back issue or a hip issue in the older population, it's hip OA. And that could be your older active population. It doesn't just mean, you know, non-active people. Um, and they have back issues. So uh, they're almost because of their anatomical proximity, 
the, the, often they're they're unseparable as you you get a package deal with them as a clinician um and it makes sense because if you think about it if you have one issue or the other anatomically your back si let's say or your hip having a, a failure of your gluteal complex whether and if it's massive that's pretty straightforward because you can see why someone has a giant pelvic drop in the rock and that's going to have you're going to have issues in both areas but even subtle in our more let's say a more active population where maybe it becomes an endurance issue and their performance and and, and such decreases over time during, let's say, a session or if they're running, whatever it may be, then those other areas in proximity, back SI complex, hip joint, they're going to pay the price. So often the underlying, uh, the, the the common denominator between a number of these processes, these anatomical neighbors is the soft tissue performance, that strength, or I'll, I'll say strength and endurance. Sometimes it's not a one rep max issue. It's, you know, what do they do over time? And you see failure within a session or sessions of especially endurance athletes where we see a lot of the gluteal issues occur. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, you bring up a good point there as well. You mentioned the Trendelenburg sign and Trendelenburg gate. Um, and that seems to be an example, at least from my experience thus far, that correcting that certainly helps alleviate symptoms uh, long-term. Is there a limit to the movement screen or movement assessment and how functional movement applies to, you know, pain? Like, can you think of any examples where, you know, someone showed a compensatory pattern, but correcting it didn't really change anything. Yeah, you know, and, and I can use a few uh, uh, examples because if you think, and I'm using the hip population, obviously, in this case. Um, it, the one good thing I can say is that, you know, in the last probably five years, even more, we've always, you know, as, as physical therapists, we always, we always emphasize movement, we should. Uh, we always put a high value on it. It's, it's the unique part of our, you know, our, our profession. I think we, we, I don't say we own it if we own anything, but you know, we we were trained in it more than anybody. You know, better than anybody, I would say, in in, in, in you know, with 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 corresponding detail. But there's literature now that shows in the non-arthritic hip pain population, which is the name we turn we term to say that those that would cover most of our active individuals with hip pain, uh, whether it's dysplasia, FAIS, etc. Um, the the movement quality or the the importance of movement has been now shown in the literature it's starting to emerge in terms of what it, it means for outcomes and such however there are things you have to consider there that at times uh you know people's movement it may be compensatory and it doesn't look optimal right what we think is optimal for athletic performance but there may be some reason so give you two examples on opposite ends of the spectrum uh you know impingement patients we know that they you know we look at them do a single leg squat you will see that they tend to uh you know often, if you look at it as a, a subpopulation, their pelvis will often tend to tilt forward as you go on that squat and they'll close down that angle faster at the hip. Uh, you can see it, just creates, it creates an end range you know, earlier in the motion and we think that correlates with, with, uh, um, with some of the pain that they're experiencing. And you know, the thought process would be to correct that, so to speak, by whatever means it is, whether it's feedback, uh, whether it's strengthening or some combination of all, you know, all those to improve performance on that, that because they've controlled that pelvic tilt in the sagittal plane that they should be less painful and often that is the case uh but you have to also remember some of these other hip conditions are in a spectrum so what we sometimes see is people who are a little less stable due to a dysplastic hip and when i say that i don't mean the childhood dysplastic the, the pediatric dysplastic hip that's become very very relevant because very apparent early in childhood severe needs other you know but maybe the more borderline uh dysplastic hip that does pretty well because it gives you mobility but over time starts to cause issues for the individual they may favor a little bit of an anterior tilt because it provides a little more coverage to the femoral head so you know for those individuals we start tinkering around with it too much and sometimes what we do is we we we, we bring them out of a little more uh, we, we take them out of a position that gave them a little more stability right and we actually make it symptomatically could make it worse it's a nuanced conversation these things you can't always see this happening but you know there's an example of, of working towards what we think and what we know is optimal movement but in some particular situations Maybe it wasn't the optimal movement. Maybe the, it was actually serving them well, uh, just through their anatomical capacity. Yeah, and that ultimately goes back right to where you started off on the importance of the subjective component is ultimately, if you don't understand who you're working with and what they need to do, then you might fall into that trap, right? Like yeah. maybe I see someone who's in a slight anterior tilt and a little bit increased of, you know, lumbar lordosis, for example, but then I understand that they're a gymnast and they need to backbend extremely far and do kinds of all kinds of crazy flexible things that I can only dream about doing. Um, yeah. You know, if I go about correcting that too much, then how does that impact their performance out on an athletic side? You know, right. And the other piece too is, you know, at least in the athletic population, and 
uh, I'll, I'll uh, venture to say that athletes are not limited to a certain age number. They can be across the right. population. Uh, athletes are ultimately master compensators. They will find crazy ways to hide things. Yes. <laughs> ultimately, it becomes a conversation of what do we correct, uh, quote unquote, correct or not correct, because maybe that compensation helps them athletically. Right. Um, right. You know, we'll take a broad example here, a knee valgus, which, yes, it's at the knee, but ultimately we credit that largely being a hip problem, lack of stability at the hip. And we look at that as always a bad thing. Uh, but then we watch basketball players go into that position every game or power lifters who are squatting eight or 900 pounds move into slight knee valgus in my assumption to get a better moment arm and angle for their hips, uh, their glutes to produce force to get out of the hole of the squat. And they're okay. They're not getting hurt every time or anything like that. So right. it becomes an interesting conversation and it's always like a hot topic thing I find on the movement assessment versus on uh, how much is too much. Where do we correct versus not correct? And ultimately, I think it always comes back to the case-by-case -case scenario. And if you don't do a good enough job listening to your patient and understanding what they have to do, then as you mentioned, you could do them a disservice trying to correct something that doesn't need to be. Yeah, and it's often a conversation too, especially as you get into the organized athletics and higher level, you have to make sure you're mindful of, you know, they're, they're, they're likely, especially these days, even younger kids working with uh, uh, you know, a coach, a trainer, someone who, who, who you know, who may or may not know these issues. And, and, and there may be a conversation to be had there where, uh, uh, you know, you want to make sure everyone's on the same page. And I could, one, you never want to have conflicting, you want to minimize conflicting messages to a patient just because it's, you know, the, the quality of patient care suffers then. And also, uh, you know, the, the relationship, uh, for good reason, often, you know, if you're giving advice that is contradicting what their coach who they probably have a very, very good relationship with you know their advice one you're probably you're going to lose that a good bit of the time uh or if anything you're going to set up a conflict where then you have to force somebody to decide you know and i think of you know i don't treat a ton of golfers but the one thing you'll never see but i, I used to you know with, with when i used to see more of the, those types of hip injuries and you'll never hear me giving out i'm not a very good golfer but you'll never hear me giving out golf advice right on what someone should do I'll give them an educational, you know, description of forces, what they do. So maybe there's some discuss with your, uh, you know, your golf pro or you're working with your coach, you know, but, you know, setting a, drawing a hard line sometimes is really going to put everyone in, a, in an awkward situation and it may not get you the clinical result that you're looking for. Now that, that does very little bit post-surgically and such, or maybe it's just not time to do something, but that's a whole other conversation versus where performance meets rehab. And that line is sometimes blurred. You know, here's where you and I differ, Keelan. I, I actually give out the golf advice. Um, I tell them very explicitly what not to do because yeah, yeah. I, I golf like I should bowl and I bowl like I should golf. <laughs> um, you know, golf for me is a high score wins kind of thing. Um, but no, I, I completely echo your point of the importance of collaboration because ultimately we can't know everything. Uh, right. You know, We can't expect to be the golf coach and or the hitting coach and right. the movement expert PT and the strength coach and the mental health resource and the sports dietitian. We can't expect to do everything ourselves. You know, we, we can wear a lot of hats, but we, yeah. just, we run out of room eventually. So I think <laughs> that there's certainly a lot of emphasis that needs to be placed on collaboration with all of those individuals. And ultimately just kind of having discussions like, Hey, here's what I see. What have you noticed? Because yeah, right. you might notice something and that coach might say, Hey, actually I noticed when they swing, they do this or yeah. something along those lines. And you might actually find you've kind of seen a lot of the same things, just maybe didn't realize it. Um, and yeah, absolutely. earlier you brought up another interesting point on the micro instability of the hip. And that's yeah. something that I'm certainly seeing a lot more myself clinically. I see, you know, a lot of younger female athletes who have this, a really crazy motion. I can grab their hip and internally rotate at 90 degrees almost effortlessly. Um, and meanwhile, I look at myself who gets 20 on a good day and I'm slightly jealous, but um, you know, ultimately I'm seeing a lot more of those instability cases at the hip run around. And it, it, it it's always interesting to me because we've talked about shoulder instability clinically right. so much, but I don't see the same instability concept applied at the hip too often, or same thing what we talked about before with the micro tears. Do you feel that like a micro tear at the hip would go hand in hand with instability? Or do you think that, you know, instability is just a general strength thing? Or how do you kind of see the concepts of instability overlapping with the concepts of soft tissue involvement at the hip? 
Yeah, you know, when you look at it, hip instability, you could kind of put in a couple different buckets as well. But, you know, we're, we're releasing our, hopefully up uh, the next two weeks here. We're just waiting for the editorial process to, you know, we're releasing our clinical practice guidelines and, you know, we have seven or eight authors on there. I might be off on that number, but a number of authors. And uh, the probably the greatest challenge we had in, in, in agreeing how to discuss it was hip instability. I like the shoulder, which probably has, just has more literature and it's probably a little easier to find. And the issue with hip instability, you have large amounts of instability that are usually identified, or, and that's your dysplastic hip, shallow cup, if so to speak. And, and that hip's going to be very unstable. And there's, you know, it's, it's a whole conversation that's probably often one we're not having unless you work with pediatrics, et cetera. And then you have the term that I, I used, I utilized uh, when we were discussing it, and, and you'll see a rise in the athletic literature now is micro instability. And the reason that's very relevant at the hip is because it, it truly defines the clinical entity of instability. So it doesn't just mean your hips loose, though that can be part of it. But there are plenty of people with kind of loose hips, so to speak, that don't have issues. It's a clinical entity of, of pain. Unlike the shoulder, it may or may, you may or may not get some of that apprehension and may feel you know unstable to them, but often it's more of a pain issue, not as much of the actual feeling of not supporting you. It's just due to the fact that even an unstable hip doesn't move to the massive amount the shoulder does. It's an anatomical you know, variation there. Um, but when we use that term microinstability, what we're suggesting are, you know, a number of subtle features of supporting tissues of the hip. And that could be the ligaments, the labrum, uh, uh, that, that provides stability to it and be affected in a way that it affects performance. Um, so when you look at that, that particular group of individuals, there's the group who is, you were describing, my daughter's a dancer, so you see a lot of these individuals, they're just <laughs> lax all over. I mean, they, they're lax in their shoulders too. So there's part of your issues. Sometimes they have shoulder and hip issues, et cetera. You know, they're going to score high on that bait and scale just shows universal laxity. They're going to tend to be lax at all joints and the hip is no exception. So they potentially can have issues. They often do well because you, you see them, they just do, often do well with the strengthening program because they're probably not doing it a good bit of the time or a, a strengthening slash and with a neuromuscular control program. Then if you want to make a comparison to the shoulder, you'll also see the group of acquired microinstability. Think of your golfers who aren't, we don't typically think is the most flexible group of people, um, but it's what I saw a lot early on in my uh, career, especially when in the, in back then, which was a long enough ago, golfers weren't the athletes who are now across the board. Now a lot of them are training, you know, they're, they're training like athletes the way you'd expect them to for good reason. Um, they can acquire a directional micro instability, uh, basically meaning that, you know, through forceful driving of the ball, in this case, the extend, externally rotate the hip, loads the femoral head forward. And over time, you attenuate the femoral ligament anterior structures. Think of that as your, your, your unidirectional shoulder instability. At least, you know, there's a comparison there. Uh, again, those individuals can do well with rehabilitation, but it may change your, your concept and way that you treat it because they are only particularly lax and then clinically unstable in one area. So you see the subtle variations. You can often, you know, there are ways you can pick that out through the examination. Um, and then it still comes down to your impairments, you know, how you treat them. You look for, you know, weaknesses that may be present, imbalances that may be present, and then also uh, hoping to to fuse that get together along with the strength training into a, a movement control type of approach as well. Yeah, you bring up such an interesting point with the dance population, so much so um, the timing is impeccable because we've just published a episode diving into dancers and dance medicine ah, yes. uh, with a dance medicine specialist. Um, and, you know, I believe that in order to do some of the positions that they get into with the extreme external rotation, the straddle splits and different things, I believe there actually has to be micro tearing of the iliofemoral ligament just to allow it. So yeah, the, you know, you, it, it adapts over time. There's a good example, right? You'll find some of those individuals that are uh, uh, whatever test you do and such, it may, especially moving forward, they may come up positive, uh, not so much for pain, but you know, that, that, that you would say that is an excessive range of motion or mobility. Uh, it, it probably isn't great for, you know, a good bit of the normal quote, a normal pop population, uh, in terms of potential things that could happen there. But, you know, that's where performance is going to require, you know, what it requires sometimes isn't the most ideal for, you know, the average individual, but, it's going to be there because if it isn't, they're not going to do it, you know? Right, right. Before we get into the intervention side for that, because I really want to dive down that, I got to ask you too, you know, we talked about SI joint special tests and clusters. Other than the, I believe there's a clinical prediction rule for like hip OA. Is there mm -hmm. anything along those lines for younger individuals as well? Um, because, you know, at least from my standpoint as a young clinician, we do our gross movement, our isolated movement, we get our strength, our range of motion, our impairments, then we look at our tests. Uh, there, there's some that I like, and there's some tests that I really don't like. For example, I have never really felt 
like good outcomes from like the log roll test where you just roll the femur in. Um, so is there anything that you kind of look at on your own from like a more validated clinical prediction rule or just cluster of tests that really speak more value at the hip? Yeah. So, you know, that is a good point. And, and you know, if you look at the, where the evidence lies for these, the one thing we know across the board, uh, whether it's good or bad is that particularly in the younger non-arthritic, I say younger only because eventually because the non-arthritic becomes arthritic as you go on with age, if they've had those issues in a, in a decent amount of people, especially if it's dysplastic hip, but uh, let's just say in the non-arthritic hip pain population, most of the tests that are out there and that are described, there's so many of them. And you, there's no reason to go through every single one of them. I, we use the flexion adduction internal rotation test, the most you know well-researched one uh, as a prime example, but you know, throw everything else in there, they're almost all better screening tests than they are than, than they have specificity. So, you know, that meaning uh, it's a lot easier to rule it out than to rule it in. So often what we do is we literally try to do that. You look at other kind of what maybe low hanging fruit. We have pretty good uh, descriptors and, and, and clusters tests that are validated for the hippo A population. So often I'll take a look at that first, just to make sure, especially in some of my people who are, and I include myself in this population, uh, you know, hey, they give me their thirties and forties, you start developing hippo A. If you see a, an actual large loss of internal rotation, uh, they, they may have impingement on a radiograph, but it is also a good choice, chance of losing joint space and such. They're becoming that arthritic patient. So you start looking at, you know, market loss of internal rotation, specifically flexion, then, then you're already moving well down that path. You know, then you may be looking more at an OA patient. It doesn't matter if they have, you know, what the radiographs say and such, they're losing true joint mobility. Um, you know, we will use our hip and pitch tests. If, if, if those tests for uh, FAIS don't come up positive, because they are good screening examinations, you, you can start to move towards other other causes of their pain. They're good screening tools. Now, if they're positive, the only thing it doesn't tell you is, yeah, that could be also be, oh, it could be a stress fracture. It could be many other things. Um, uh, so, you know, there's not a real well-defined test, but, but what I look for is age. They're going to be relatively younger. I rule out, you know, the potential for OA by those validated cluster tests that we use to rule in hip OA. Um, I'll go through a few extra articular tests to elicit pain because typically, typically those don't elicit pain minus maybe hip flexors uh, for the non-arthritic hip pain population. And if I have that positive test that is a better screening test uh, and nothing else is coming up, then it just, it increases my, um, that's what I'm looking for. Uh, it increases my confidence that we're looking at I'm going to use impingement because that's what everyone's focusing on in the sports medicine literature uh, that we're looking at impingement. Other tests, like just the log, log rule is an interesting test. There's not a ton of data on that, but you know, you, you know, if you have a bunch of people based on, you know, where they do these, a lot of these uh, studies, they're out of hip preservation centers and such, and they're going to see a ton of these patients. So if you have a room full of people with hypermobility in front of you, you're probably going to find a bunch of positive log rule tests that goes out more on one side versus the other. It's a little murky. You see the general population coming in, all sorts of different diagnoses. They're not selectively being funneled to you. Uh, there's not a lot of research to show just how accurate the, those tests are uh, in that case. And that's probably where most of us function, you know, somewhere in that space versus having, you know, most of us aren't sitting there, even myself, but, and I'd be more likely than most people. You know, I'm not getting 20 hip people sent to me today that probably have FAIS. You know, I'm getting a variety of different diagnoses. So the research to support these is often. Uh, uh, you have to take it with a grain of salt because of where it's coming from. And that's just, you know, that's where the literature stands. And we kind of try to reflect that in our clinical practice guidelines when we make recommendations. Yeah, definitely. I like that kind of rundown there. And, you know, I, I guess I have to say I lied earlier because you brought up such a good point that I need to hit now. Um, you mentioned that it's difficult from a test standpoint to pick up on something like a hip stress fracture. And that's something that we definitely see in a lot of the younger athlete populations, especially and as far as I know, there's not really one good thing you can do objectively to kind of look one way or the other there. Uh, you have to listen subjectively and get a good history. But ultimately, that's one that you would need the radiograph to confirm. I mean, I've had some in the clinic before where, you know, I do the um, percussion test, the auscultation test, and that comes back positive. So I'm like, OK, I think we're good. You know, you break out your little tuning fork. Um I've thrown the phone on like vibrate mode before and hit different mm -hmm. areas. Um, so I, I, at least from my own standpoint, I haven't really found anything good to detect those. Would you say something similar? Yeah. You know, it's funny. I always joke that uh, in Pittsburgh, if it's, you know, February through, through the end of March and you have someone coming with hip pain, who's a runner, I automatically 50% increase in my likelihood to think of stress, right? Just because we're all training for the marathon. 
right? So the history is so important here, you know, in, in these cases, because you, you, because the, if not the majority, depending on the environment that you work in, a great proportion of these individuals, it's going to be a ramp up that just overloaded the, you know, the bony, the, the structural capabilities of the bone related to training. You're only going to pick that out from history. Now, what I'll look for then is evolved. One, do they have a history of any other hip pain? No. Um, did they ramp up their training? Um, you know, if there's any nutritional background and such or other, you know, considerations that we have to take into, you know, take into consideration other factors. Um, but in pain that is increased in relation to training that is only getting worse over time, I, the historical component is so big. And to your point, if any of the tests that I think potentially could, and none of them are great, I know there's a little bit, you know, the literature, the, the single study or couple studies on the repercussion tests look good. The percussion, patellar percussion test, but uh, um, really in clinical practice, as you know, it's hard for me to sometimes really interpret that. And I've been wrong many times uh, saying I thought it was positive or I thought it was you know, indicative of a potential stress fracture. But to me, I set my threshold a little lower for these individuals because of the cost of missing uh, a stress fracture. So if I'm the first person to get eyes on them, and even a couple of these things are, are, are making me suspicious and the history warrants it, that, that's where I'm a little less uh, hesitant to, to send them to at least to someone to get looked at. I do know a case. I didn't miss it. No one actually missed it. You know, but it always haunts me of a young lady who uh, had the symptoms, signs. She realized it. She was walking up to get, she, she finally decided, you know, I'm going to go see the specialist. I saw her after surgery. So this tells you where it's going. Uh, was walking up the stairs to the orthopod's office and her hip completely fractured on the way up from a stress fracture, a runner, right? So I think about it, I was like, oh, that, that, I do not want that on me. You know, and I, I don't think that, you know, in this case, there's, there's justification. You don't want to be you know, you, you don't want to be overzealous and referring everybody for something. You know, I don't do that with labral tears. I don't say, oh, I think of labral tear. You're going right to the physician. You need imaging. So because the physician's not going to, our, our surgeons aren't even going to do that. They're going to say, well, we put you through rehab anyway. But in the case, I suspect a potential stress reaction, stress fracture, other than the activity modification recommendations, I've set that threshold a little lower to referring those people because I think the outcomes of missing it are just, they're so much more severe. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I love that you bring that up because it only it only takes missing one uh, to <laughs> kind of realize like, oh, this is this is not good. Um, no, it's not and, a good look. <laughs> you know, thankfully, knock on wood, I haven't had that happen to me. Well, indirectly, we had that happen. Um, we had a patient who saw me for physical therapy and an ortho doc. They were kind of holding on the MRI because she was getting mm -hmm. better. And, yeah. you know, this individual got back to the point where they were doing quite a bit physically without symptoms. So it was kind of one of those, like, at least for me, it caught me off guard. Um, yeah. Typically, those don't improve. Right. Um, no, that's true. Yeah. So um, anyways, finally, on to the intervention side. Of things <laughs> here. You know, I, I think that the exam, the evaluation, your assessment is ultimately the most important, because like we mentioned, if you don't get you you might not get everything on day one. You might have to look at some other things later on and that's fine. Things might change and that's fine. But ultimately you have to have some general direction of what I need to do and where I'm going to go. It'll drive your intervention. Yeah. Right, exactly. Um, so on the intervention side, what kind of things do you like to do? And I know that's a very broad general statement here, but when you think of like core stability being important for the hip, what are your go-tos for a core stability yeah. standpoint? When you think of hip stability or micro tear and, you know, the, one of the glute tendons or something along those lines, where do you typically go with your interventions? You know, are there certain things you like, certain things you don't like? Yeah. They open chain, closed chain, kind of walk me through what the typical Keelan, uh, you know, intervention plan would look like for some of these. Different yeah, things. sure. And, and I think, of, I guess I'm kind of semi excited to say in our new uh, CPGs that will be published free, you know, free access to JOSPT, but it's their CPGs, so they're free access. Uh, one thing we we found, you know, we're looking at the literature, and I'm, I'm glad, I, and I think most of us practice this way, so I don't think it's something that should be a big surprise, is that uh, it supports a multimodal intervention. Now, when I say multimodal, what that means is it, uh, uh, the, the programs that have shown improvement usually have a mixed component of strength, some mixed component. Now, what it is exactly, that isn't as well defined yet. We just haven't, you know, the studies aren't that, that high quality, but a, a combination of strengthening motor control joint mobility that may be manual therapy or, or, you know, other, uh, uh interventions, um, in, in neuromuscular control, all, all employed together. Um, and, and so I guess, you know, what that tells you is, you know, you, you, you should at least go into the intervention, the thought process of thinking of 
uh, of expecting that you may have to use, you know, different things in your toolbox, which I think that's not different than anything else that we see. Um, strengthening what, if you look again, the literature shows that these people are weak. And I'm talking about your athletic, non-arthritic hip pain individuals. They are weak and where they tend to be weak are uh, the, the gluteal muscles. No surprise there. Right. Uh, and the rotators. Now what I'll say, you know, clinically, I think we across, I'm, I don't want to generalize, but I think I can in this case, you know, therapists, we, we go right to those gluteal muscles, right? We, we think of that all the time for many different things, not, not even just the hip and, and rightly so. And I think we do a pretty good job of, uh, of the basic interventions there, right? I think what we sometimes don't think of is transverse planes. So those are those deep rotators. Uh, think of your athletes, you know, a good majority of your athletes, uh, especially field athletes, martial artists, et cetera. There's, there's pivoting of the fixed femur on the, on the pelvis. Uh, excuse me, the pelvis on the fixed femur to some degree. And so what we'll often do is we'll train rotation. You know, we'll see people sitting there doing internal external rotation of the band or something isolated. That's good. You know, if you want to kind of wake those muscles up, strengthen them even. Uh, but at some point you got to get them in weight bearing and probably in double and then single limb, limb weight bearing and rotating the pelvis on the femur. So I always make sure, uh, and that's also true, just activities of daily living. So I'm not looking, I'm not just talking about elite athletes here, but, um, I, I, I make it a goal to get to the point where we can perform exercise with individuals on one leg and they're required to keep to required to rotate the pelvis on the femur, you know, kind of open it up as a term I'll use the patient or close it down, but opening up as your external rotators, deep external rotators active while maintaining frontal plane stability. It's a simple process when you see them do it. It's not the hardest thing to show it. Sometimes it, I put a lot of words to it, but it's really transverse plane motion created in, in a way that, that all other planes are controlled. So you're not rotating and dipping down on one side and corkscrewing your hip. It's just not good for the hip for one thing. Um, you know, and, 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 and so my, my progression of the strength program always works towards function, right? That's what we're looking at. At the same time, you can't just dump to that, jump to that right away because if they haven't met the prerequisites of they just aren't strong enough to even control single limb stance, probably shouldn't have them rotating on that leg without meeting that prerequisite. And then you also have to determine, is it a strength issue or maybe their motor control is just not good. And then your, your strength program has to be supplemented by an appropriate motor control program. It's just a little bit of intervention approach. It's not just strengthening, it's feedback, tasks, you know, mastering tasks, et cetera. Uh, uh, so you, you can run those both in parallel, but you just don't want to jump the gun and start to what, where you want to get without covering the prerequisites first. I love that you bring that up. Ultimately, it's earning the right to progress. And right. ultimately, um, as you mentioned, your interventions have to be complete in the sense that you need to address everything. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've seen this from uh, other individuals. And I'll admit when I was in PT school, going through my clinicals, thinking I ran the world, um, I also made the same mistake. Um, you know, basically they would look at the hip flexors and say, well, it's a positive Thomas test. The hip flexors tight, but they also would look at hip flexor strength and it would be super weak. So we would treat it by just stretching the heck out of it. Yeah. And it's like, you know, I, I'm guilty of that myself. You know, at one point, I think the Thomas stretch was like my answer for everything when I was in <laughs> school, right? That'll fix it all. Um, but, you know, you can't just stretch muscles and expect improvement. We also have to uh, use some targeted strengthening. And as you mentioned, you know, I, I would say that three sets of 10 sideline clamshells never changed anyone's life, unfortunately. Right. <laughs> um, but there is a time and a place for it. You know, yeah. same, same thing with the sideline hip abduction. You know, that's not the thing that's going to take someone from day one all the way to, you know, the finish line. But there's a time and a place for it, right? Even, you know, if you get someone post-op ACL and all they can do is sideline hip abduction in the brace in addition to their quad sets, their heel, heel pops, all that kind of stuff, I'm going to have them crush it. You know, I don't want to fall behind on other things like, you know, the hip strengthening. I might not spend a ton of time in the clinic on it because we need to get that quad and extension back. And I'd realize that's a separate discussion point, but I can't, you know, I, I can't miss the hip in that, you know, and I've, I, I think that's something that we often forget is just because it's not the thing that's going to look super cool and sexy and take us all the rest of the way doesn't mean that we should just completely ignore it. Um, and you make a good point too, that sometimes the idea is you're teaching recruitment, right? They, yep. and, and so, you know, dosing becomes an issue when it does become an issue, but sometimes it is a matter of, Hey, this is what it feels like to recruit this muscle. Now, right. this isn't going to get you where you need to be. Then we're gonna have to start applying dosing principles, you know, move towards eccentrically loaded activities. So it's kind of the start of your journey, but you can't strengthen somebody's muscle if they don't know how to recruit it. Yeah. So 
once you get a feel for it, then you start the dosing conversation in your athletes. And then you start really pushing those principles. And I'll even venture to say that, you know, a sideline clamshell or a sideline hip abduction is not inherently a strengthening exercise. So you're not going to get as much of a, as you mentioned, you're not going to get the same dosing and load response out of something like that as you would something, you know, more, I, I, I use the term functional, but I think yeah. anything strengthening is functional. Um, you know, like if you can compare that to a heavy loaded single leg squat with good form yes. or a heavy loaded single leg RDL, um, I think that's the kind of stuff that will carry you much further. Um, and I do say the term heavy and loaded together because I think ultimately a big issue we see, especially with the hip is a lot of physios and even some, you know, strength guys and that sort of thing are afraid to load it. You know, they think, yeah. you know what, I'm doing my clamshells, my sideline hip, you know, we're hitting the core with the bird dog. So we're all good. You know, we're doing the big three, checking all the boxes. And it's like, you know, that's, that's a great start, but can we take it a step further? Can we do a heavy loaded single leg squat pattern, a heavy loaded single leg RDL pattern? How about some lunge patterns with a heavy load and a heavy RNT band? Can we start to incorporate more things into it instead of just saying, well, you know, you've hit the isolated movements, you know, the integrated and functional patterns, that's all going to go on you. Right. Yeah, we can see that when we have uh, those individuals who haven't been progressed to the point that they should be, all the points that you just mentioned, you know, when we when we do return to sport testing, this is anywhere but the hips, I'm just seeing that as an example, because inevitably they'll, they'll, they're high likelihood of failing their actual return to sport test because they just haven't trained in that manner. They haven't never met that, that threshold. You know, they've done a lot of isolated things, but they haven't pulled it all together to have appropriate strength, motor control, endurance, and to do it repetitively over a set amount of time. So, you know, ultimately a lot of those individuals will not do well on that the, the, those testing procedures, which 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 will, will identify, which, which intend to uh, uh, look at those characteristics. What kind of things are you looking at on a hip return to sport test? Are you, you know, we think of like a knee, for example, and yeah. we look at hamstring quad ratio. We look at single leg squat and hops and jumps and all these other tests. Would you say the hip is pretty similar or are there any different unique things that you like to assess? It's a little bit of both. There's a lot of similarities and a lot of that I, I can tell you is by default, you know, again, I know in our own center and I think, you know, if you look across the board, we have you know, some consensus look, look, uh, looks at our consensus agreements on this. So we've been published a few of them um, by default. We've pulled a lot from the knee. Now, part of that is because when you get to the, to any lower extremity, some tests are just going to be functional regardless of, you know, what joint is involved, the ability in most sports to jump, pivot, hop. So we'll pull some of those tests, a lot of those tests over, and they would be applicable anywhere in the lower extremity. So there's a lot of similarities there. Uh, and then they've been, they have admittedly been much more, you know, there's much more validation in the knee, even though even there, it's not by any means perfect. Now, what we will look at the hip is we may bring in, I may, and also this will vary by sport at times, I'll look at some ratios that are a little bit different. So we actually, quad and hamstring, those are still good things to look at, but for the hip, ab and adductor strength, so you want symmetry of abductors side to side, if possible, close. They're never perfectly symmetrical, right? But, but you know, uh, we use a 90% index. Not a lot of literature to actually validate that. We're just borrowing off what we look at for other lower bodies. The other thing to look at when you look at soft tissue injuries of the hip is the adductor to abductor ratio. I think you're hawking soccer players. There is a lot of literature for this. There is a decent amount. It's been published. Um, and, and, and if you're in it. Whether or not you are rehabbing some with an adductor injury, if it's an adductor injury, then for sure. But even those who don't, because hip injuries will probably predispose you, potentially predispose you to having an adductor injury. So you know, that 80% ratio is what you'll see in the literature. It's always a good starting point of your adductor to the ipsilateral abductor. You know, anything less than that, they, there's a potential, particularly in hockey and soccer players, you know, risk for injury or re-injury of that adductor complex. That's kind of unique to the hip, only in that you probably aren't looking at all your knee and your know, ankle patients. You could, but you're probably not. Um, you know, so that, that is something that we'll particularly look at. And then again, I look at rotary motions that involve pivoting on that hip. I may add in a couple of tasks that are just, uh, that emphasize it a bit more only because it's one, it's a, it's a demand of our athletes. And two, it's what we think of as where it's often we'll see a failure, you know, coming out of rehab of, of, uh, of the individual when they get back to sport. Yeah, I love that. And I love your uh, point on the ratios and all of that as well. How, how do you typically test some of the different ratios? Like if you did abductor, adductor, are you using yeah. like a isometric device sitting down or laying down or do you do, you do everything standing? How do you like to uh, test those? So in a perfect world, 
which I, I don't, it's interesting because, you know, I see a lot of hip patients, but I don't live in, when I say perfect world, you have all the devices available you could. Uh, and, and I don't, one, I don't, I don't use, uh, uh, I don't remember the last time that I have probably at some point just tinker around with it. I don't use the, we have a biodex machine, large sports medicine. Clinic. I don't use that for the hip. It's just, it's a real hassle to be honest. And I don't think you get a lot of the data is hard. You can do it. It is quite the process in clinical reality. Um, you know, in a perfect world, I'd have something like the VLD, like the hip deck, right? The, the force frame, uh, you know, that all the pro teams have and a number of my colleagues have their different settings in, in, in athletic settings. Because I think you, you one, it's, it's just, it is a very reproducible way to get hip ab and adductor strength. I don't have that either. So uh, we have, you know, handheld dynamometer, you know, or you can even use a 10 deck, right? If you don't have that, you know, available, uh, you get kind of creative with it. Now, the testing position, um, I'll look at it two ways. You can do both and it's very easy. It doesn't take long because it's but supine in both cases. You can go supine hips and knees, excuse me, flex to 45 degrees. Uh, if you look at the EMG studies, that pulls in the greatest, it's the greatest proportional recruitment of all your hip adductors. Uh, however, when I'm looking to return to sport, I also do it straight because that's the Copenhagen test, you know, that that Christian Thorberg out of Europe has uh, described hundreds of soccer and, and, and validated hundreds of soccer and uh, uh, hockey players. Now for that often though, it isn't the strength that's so important. It's the symptom reproduction. You know, that's how you guide return to sports. So to answer your question, supine test strength, both in it, knee, hips, excuse me, flex to 45 degrees and in neutral. And then in that neutral squeeze test, other than strength testing, we'll also look for symptom reproduction. And there's a whole, you know, he describes very nicely on using kind of a red light, green light, yellow light approach of reporting their pain, whether they're really ready to return to sport yet. And he's validated that, or they have validated that in hundreds of thousands of athletes at this point. Yeah, that's incredible. I love that approach. Kaelin, I feel like we've talked about so many different things from examination <laughs> considerations to interventions to a return to sport process. Is there anything that you feel we missed or anything else that you really want to hit on that we didn't yet? No, I would just, you know, I would just tell people that to, to realize that this is a very, uh, um, we should use it as an article title years ago in 2014, and it hasn't changed. It's an evolving process. So I'm excited, especially in the last five years, the things that have come out that have been very specific to uh, rehab, you know, for and, and non-surgical rehab for these individuals. You know, early on, we put all our emphasis on surgical, re post-surgical rehab because those patients were right in front of us. Tr truly, the surgeons have a lot more money than us, so they had the ability to research, you know, post-surgical rehab. They had more of an interest in it for, for good reason. But now we, we do have, it's by no means perfect, and it will change in a year, and two years, three years. But, you know, at least now we're starting to, to get momentum on non-surgical treatment of these individuals and parsing it out with a little more specificity. And I would tell people, you know, if anything, just to stay tuned because it is evolving. The things we're telling you today, I don't think they'll ever be obsolete, but, you know, we'll be able to get a lot more granular detail on some of these recommendations, such as strength. What do you do? You know, core strengthening, hip, pelvic girdle, muscle strengthening, movement qualities where a lot of this is really starting to come to the forefront now. You know, what it means on tests that we've already known have been out there, but what do people with non-arthritic hip pain look like on these tests? And then how do we pair that to intervention? And now we're even seeing some merging literature showing that if you can improve somebody's quality of movement, you can improve their patient reported outcomes. And that's a really great to have. That's something because it's very it's what we do, right? No one else does that. Uh, uh, so I think, you know, again, that, that, that's going to give us a little more, if you want to call it ownership or, you know, a little more of a, 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 a stake, you know, that we can show in the literature as to the outcomes of these patients. And, and uh, so I'm excited to see over the next four or five years, you know, and what there are a lot of people doing exciting work here. And I think we're going to have a lot to talk about as time goes on. Yeah, I completely agree with you there, Keelan. And speaking of a lot to talk about, where can people find out more about you or where can people yeah. find that new CPG that you've referenced a few times that'll be coming out soon? So if you, uh, I think, I believe, I don't see any emails popping up saying otherwise. Uh, I, I think it will likely formally be published in July, if not the month after that. There'll probably be a sneak peek on the Journal of Orthopedic Sports Physical Therapy website. Uh, again, it, you know, obviously, we always encourage people to be members, but the, the the CPGs are free, like any good CPG should be, to the public to access. And if you really want to get, get a sense, look at the one we published in 2014 and when the new one comes out. And you may look at the new one and say, hey, there's like we give graded recommendations. There's, like a, there's maybe one or two A's, a bunch of B's, some C's, some D's, E's, all the way down through F. But if you look at what we had back in 2014, everything was an F. So, you know, if you're looking at it from a record, court card perspective, it may not be the honor roll, but it's better than we were doing in 2014, you can learn a lot about our work because we summarize not just our work, everyone, our attempt is to give a non-biased summary of where we stand in conservative treatment for these issues. So I think that's a very good place to look. 
uh, uh, you know, it, it, and it's free, it's online, and it's meant to give clinicians an idea where the literature stands right now for these individuals. Yeah, yeah, completely agree. So we'll be sure to link to that below, and we'll probably link to some other things too. There, maybe your uh, web, your bio on the uh, University of Pittsburgh website, oh, yeah. or something like that, there as well. So that way, if people want to find out more about you, or you know, I jokingly, well, seriously, told someone before that we were going to link to his uh, research gate. And he was like, oh, wait, yeah. wait, is that still a thing? Do people use it? It is. <laughs> um, so, so we'll link to all of that below as well. So if people want to find out more about it. I do have a ResearchGate account. So uh, you know, you can look on there and, and, and I think it's I think it's up to date. So if you want to see any things that we've worked on and uh, it, they are available there. <laughs> for sure. So Keelan, I really appreciate your time. This was awesome. Thanks again. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Brown Body Health and Fitness Podcast. If you liked this episode, please make sure to share it with a friend, subscribe so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, and leave a review. This way we can spread knowledge and motivation and help reach more people. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you next time.